coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. Welcome, everyone. I am delighted that you are here. This is, as you can tell by all the flowers around me, my birthday. And usually I don't have cut flowers because I don't believe in it. I, but I guess the people who wanted me to know how much they love me sent flowers because I usually have my flowers in the garden and I just go out and smell them and enjoy them. But thank you for those of you who have sent me such lovely birthday messages. Thank you. It makes me glad to be alive. Um, you know, as we look at our world today, there are some inequalities. And as I look at the inequalities, I think, well, what can I do? Why are people still dying of Ebola? Why are we still harvesting resources and not giving anybody the chance to use them in their own countries? And so I thought when I met Jean on our Rotary E-Club of World Peace, it's time for us to look at this, to really look at pandemics. Why are they still raging around the world? Why are people still dying of preventable diseases? and what's going on on our planet. So when Jean said, yes, I'll be there, I thought, thank God, because now we can have a conversation. Um, Dr. Richardson received his PhD from Cornell University Medical College and his PhD in anthropology from Stanford University. He completed residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in infectious diseases and geographic medicine at Stanford also. He previously served on the clinical lead, as the clinical lead for Partners in Health Ebola Response in Sierra Leone, where he continues to conduct research on the Ebola virus disease. Now, this is really amazing. He has a brand new book out called Epidemic Illusions. And as I read this book, and as I looked at the amount of research in it, I thought, holy cow, how can we bring this down to a simple way that we can understand what's really going on on the planet? So with that, I give you Dr. Eugene Richardson. I bless you for joining us today. We are recording this so you can share this with your families and have that conversation. When you are able to just together watch what Dr. Eugene tells us we need to do in order to protect our planet. All right, Dr. Eugene, we're ready for you. All right, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to join you this evening. And I'm just going to share some slides on um, some of my experiences in global health and what led to the, um, uh, the book that Barbara spoke of, and then um, talk a little bit about uh, some recent COVID work I've been doing as well and, uh, and my uh, work on a reparations commission and how that all fits together. So... Let's go to the slides. All right, so the book is called Epidemic Illusions on the Coloniality of Global Public Health. And I'll ex explain some of the jargon in a little bit. Um, but the book is really summed up in this um, uh, shield here. This is the Harvard Medical School shield, which normally says Veritas, truth. Uh, but instead here, I've got him saying uh, Monopolium Veritatis, which is monopoly on truth because I'm, I'm sort of um, 
Well, I consider myself a, a specialist. I, I guess I don't like the word expert. And so I'm a bit of an anti-expert, but from the left, not from the right, uh, because I've seen what expertise can do as far as reproducing ideologies that actually promote elite interests instead of you know, egalitarian justice. And the book is essentially about how um, you know, not just aid and humanitarian work can sometimes just be um, a, a, um, a setup where a little bit is given with one hand to disguise what is being taken with the right. It's about how what we call public health science actually colludes in that, how, how it often imposes ways of interpreting the world that, that benefit the global north uh, and not necessarily poor countries in the global south. So um, it's based on a variety of experiences. Um, here I am uh, um, with the Ebola personal protective equipment on. And then this is, uh, this is UN issue, uh, personal protective equipment when I was in DRC, because the, there, you know, there wasn't only an Ebola outbreak there, but there was a lot of violent conflict. Um, and then this is what I currently wear in the hospital for uh, COVID uh, personal protective equipment. Um, so my experiences in global health started back before medical school when I ran the, uh, the hospital laboratory for a, a field hospital in Sudan for Doctors Without Borders. And here is our laboratory and here is the hospital from the plane. Um, here's our team. So this is uh, over 20 years ago. And uh, here's where we lived. And uh, basically these tukuls were buried underground. Here's the inside of the wards hospital beds, charts, nurses. This is really what got me started on my kind of unorthodox approach to global health. This is a village in central Sudan that was, had been burned down by, um, by paramilitary and mujahideen from the Arab North. And the idea behind was, this was to burn everybody out of their villages um, so that the Chinese could do oil exploration. And the people were collected in these internally displaced persons camps in the south um, where Doctors Without Borders was working to take care of them. And I got to be friends with some of the Arab doctors at a, at a military garrison there. And they said to me, you know, Doctors Without Borders is, is all part of our military plan. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, yeah, well, you know, we were clearing all these people out of the you know, central, uh, the center of the country so that, you know, the Chinese can pump up the oil and then through a pipeline to Port Sudan. Um, and, you know, we send the people south and you take care of them in these internally displaced person camps. You, you cure the tuberculosis and the leishmaniasis and the malaria. Um, and when you pay a nurse $100 a month, that, um, that takes care of 40 family members. And so that group of people isn't joining the SPLA, the Southern People's Liberation Army, because you really have to hit rock bottom to join that outfit. And so you're actually preventing our enemy ranks from swelling by doing this service for us. So thank you, humanitarian aid organization. So of course that stunned me because I, you know, I was young and naive at the time and, and didn't know that aid could be used for political purposes, um, but by the donors and by the recipients, right? Um, and so, you know, it wouldn't have changed what we did there, like the, the humanitarian ethos is always to kind of save the life in front of you, but it did make me start to think about how aid could be a double-edged sword, how you could go to achieve one goal, 
um, and that is you know, helping people survive from uh, deadly diseases. But you could also be contributing to uh, you know, a disservice to the population, which you might say, if, if you're you know, um, preventing uh, or, or helping prevent them achieve their own independence. And so, um, so I never really, I didn't really get any answers. Like, you know, it's not like anybody would ever have an omniscience to say, yes, this population has been done, done a disservice. So let's let these people die of malaria and TB. But it did start me down the road of thinking about um, what are the unintended consequences of um, aid and humanitarian work. And then further past that, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of unintended consequences are there to the, the research we do, to what we call public health science? And that's what the book is about, how ideology is often built into what we think of as uh, value-neutral objective science. Some more work I did in South Africa. So now I'm qualified as a doctor and I'm working on a uh, XDRTB outbreak in Tegela Ferry, South Africa. So this is not MDRTB, which is multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. This is XDRTB, extensively drug-resistant uh, tuberculosis, which is very, very difficult to treat. Um, I also worked for the Desmond Tutu HIV Center in uh, Cape Town. Um, in Bangladesh a few years ago, I was in these, uh, this is the Rohingya um, refugee camps, and we, had, um, we ran some mobile clinics uh, for people um, you know, in their 60s and 70s who've never seen a doctor before. And all of these experiences, I started learning about, you know, the politics that, um, that are part of, um, you know, what determines how, you know, why some people live healthy lives and, and why some people uh, don't. You know, we had a diphtheria out outbreak in the Rohingya camps. I had never seen diphtheria before, and I'm an infectious disease specialist because it's hardly doesn't really exist in the US and you really only see it in, in settings like this. And um, so to find out why there, there was a, um, a diphtheria outbreak, you know, you look into the history of the Rohingya in Myanmar and the, the Burmese had actually prevented, uh, you know, the Rohingya populations from getting vaccinated, from receiving the childhood vaccinations that UNICEF would bring in. So like as a, as a form of uh, civil war, as a form of warfare, they denied people uh, vaccines and, and this reared its head, uh, you know, decades later when people were in refugee camps and, and, um, and, you know, ended up getting the disease. And so, you know, I started to get to the point where I stopped, you know, in medical school, they'll teach you, okay, diphtheria is a type of bacteria and it, and it makes people sick by causing, uh, you know, plaques on their on their throat, and and there's a toxin, and et cetera, et cetera. It's all biological, but I stopped seeing, you know, the person walking into the clinic with diphtheria as just sort of a, a, a someone who had biological causation, and started seeing social forces at work. Um, and so this person is sick not because they just happen to get the diphtheria bacteria. This person is sick because of a uh, political maneuvering by the Burmese government. The people had visceral leishmaniasis in Sudan, not because they accidentally got bit by a sandfly and got the visceral leishmaniasis bug. They, they are sick because of machinations in Khartoum to, um, to uh, you know, essentially, uh, it's like bio-warfare uh, on, on, uh, on these populations. And so, 
when you're a doctor in these situations uh, and you start thinking that way, then you start thinking the cure is more than just giving the antibiotics. The cure is, uh, you know, the political solutions, the, the socioeconomic solutions. Um, and so that's what the, you know, the book is about and what my work is mainly about, how social forces become embodied as pathology. So how social forces actually get into people's bodies and make them sick. And so, you know, when that happens, you need to, you need to focus not just on the, the medical modalities for cure, but also um, the, the social modalities. I'll do a quick run through comparing uh, Sierra Leone and the US where I've been working on uh, COVID in both countries. Um, and uh, I also worked on Ebola in uh, Sierra Leone back in 2014 and 15, and then Ebola again in DRC in 2018. Um, and so just to, I like to compare the two outbreaks just so, you know, people can like blur the boundaries between what we mean by first and third world and, and how we are really just uh, one world. Um, so here's what happened when you called in uh, the number 117 to notify uh, the authorities that there was a, a potential Ebola case um, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital where I, where I worked. We had a biothreats pager, um, and in la last spring, there was so much uh, information needed because we didn't know anything about the outbreak that it actually took three people manning three separate pagers uh, all day, getting 500 pages a day just to inform patients and doctors what was going on. I worked in Sierra Leone at one of these district Ebola response centers where we would uh, get the information from the 117 and then send out an ambulance to uh, pick up a patient for um, isolation treatment, uh, testing isolation and treatment. Here was our, here's the same center at the Brigham for COVID. So I have cases we put on our PPE and uh, you know, bring them in the ambulance for the isolation treatment and um, uh, testing isolation and treatment. But interestingly, you know, I, I first worked for Doctors Without Borders in Sierra Leone. Um, and we weren't doing any of the treatment part. We were just isolating people. They wouldn't even let us put IVs in people that came in in shock um, because they thought it was you know, too dangerous in the spacesuits to put in IVs. We might stick ourselves, um, you know, various excuses. And um, I'll direct you to, Paul Farmer has a, a new book out called Fevers, Feuds and Diamonds. And it's all about how this was not, this isolation over care uh, paradigm was not a novel um, approach to humanitarian work in, in West Africa. Actually, you could trace back to colonial times where, uh, you know, the British during malaria or smallpox outbreaks would always prioritize just isolating people, quarantining them, and never offering care uh, to the people that were sick. And so that was one thing we tried to change in Sierra Leone, fo focusing on care. And when Partners in Health came and then I joined them, um, our mandate was to be as aggressive about treatment as we could. Here's the same bringing a, a COVID case to a hospital in uh, Boston, where I work. Safe and dignified burials are an important part of, um, of Ebola containment. This is what this looked like in New York. So there were so many people dying uh, last spring that they needed refrigerated trucks to, um, to, bring the, to store the bodies essentially. And uh, where, as this is our, this was a, a graveyard 
for Ebola patients in, in Sierra Leone, there's a mass graveyard just off the coast of New York for people that did not have family claim them uh, that died in New York hospitals of COVID. Here we are doing kind of house to house um, surveillance and contact tracing, which worked pretty well uh, in conjunction with the military. The US does not have a very good contact tracing uh, establishment. Um, Partners in Health developed one for Massachusetts and for a couple other cities. Um, but the outbreak's so bad in the US that it's really one, hard to keep up on all of it. And two, COVID's a little different because people are actually um, often at their most uh, transmissible, transmissible or infectious before they're symptomatic. So it's hard to kind of, you know, uh, once you catch somebody that's symptomatic, they've already had three days of infecting people. So contact tracing isn't as useful in, the, in that scenario. Um, another way to compare. Uh, the first and third world. Here's an Ebola treatment unit in um, Sierra Leone. And here is the Boston Convention Center that we needed to convert for uh, overflow uh, patients because the hospital's filled. In DRC, um, five years or four years later, after Sierra Leone, we made a lot of medical progress. So we had vaccines. So we're going to getting the Ebola vaccine. But this thing I call coloniality, which is essentially uh, colonialism existing in economic structures, in knowledge production, in, um, in unfair trade relations between countries, things that, that are of an extracted nature that have transcended the independence of former colonies. So here, here's the colonial mentality rearing its head with COVID, uh, you know, two French doctors saying that, we should have just conducted all our uh, COVID experiments uh, for vaccines in Africa because they don't have masks, they're not, they don't social distance, the force of infection would be so high, we'd get our answers quicker there. So, um, you know, the point is you don't really don't have to look far to find the colonial, men colonial mentality when it comes to, um, you know, global South and North relationships. Um, another thing that changed with the DRC outbreak is that we have these uh, portable diagnostics. Um, you know, it used to be that we had to take blood, send it in a motorcycle, we'd go to a helicopter, then go to Freetown, and we wouldn't get results for Ebola for seven days. Um, with this machinery, we could get it within a few hours. All you needed was a generator. Cartridges for um, COVID exist too, so that uh, we could, you know, decentralize COVID testing in, in places in Africa that, you know, aren't on the grid. But again, colonial, coloniality reared its head. Um, I was seconded to the Africa CDC in August of last year and went to Addis Ababa. And the first thing they asked me was, you know, can you help get the Cepheid cartridges, these cartridges, uh, personal protective equipment? I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm an infectious disease doctor. Like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, but I thought I'd be doing more infectious disease stuff. And they said, yeah, well, this is the infectious disease stuff. We're getting outbid and outmaneuvered by all the global north countries who are hoarding PPE, hoarding cartridges and now hoarding vaccines um, to the tune of, you know, um, Canada has purchased nine COVID vaccines per capita. You know, you only need one or two and they've purchased nine. So the, the, this, is, this is what colonialism looks like in, in the modern era. Uh, and this hoarding of vaccines is, is totally um, counterproductive. One, it's, you know, if global South economies uh, tank that's going to affect the global north. 
Two, if people go unprotected in the global south, those variants are going to come and escape uh, vaccines in the global north. So it's, it's, uh, it's getting to the point where the, our, our colonial hoarding is, is, going to, is coming back to bite us. And that's most evident with climate change. You see the amount of carbon that we're you know, putting out in the world um, and uh, the climate change that's taking place is only going to come back to, I mean, it's going to haunt the whole world, but it, it, it's, it's, it's come to the point where we can no longer extract and put our problems onto other countries. They're, it, they're all coming back um, to, to hound us. Here we are doing some uh, community uh, work on getting, uh, trying to get some vaccine acceptance. Uh, we had some nice new Ebola cubes. Uh, these helped us take care of patients in a safer way. Um, all right, so that's a lot of the, the experience that led to the writing of this book. And I'll just give a couple slides about the book. Unfortunately, as Barbara knows, it's kind of, it's, I had to write it more uh, academically, like it's pretty jargony, just because my tenure track demands it. And so you, you can see where I'm trying to do, you know, justice work, but I'm also co-opted by the establishment so that, um, so that I'm, I'm not as, you know, an effective uh, uh, in, in public as, as I'd like to be. But that's why I'm also, you know, trying to get out there and talk to people um, to, to spread some of the ideas. But anyway, the, ma the major idea is, was summed up in that, you know, monopolium veritati, so that, you know, universities actually don't have a monopoly on ways to interpret the world. And that monopoly on truth is a, is a platonic idea. Um, basically, his, his allegory of the cave, which is a uh, dialogue between um, Socrates and Glaucon, says that there is, there is this cave and um, people are chained in it and all they can see are the images of these figures. And their reality, therefore, is kind of our illusions because this is all they've ever known. But one of their lot escapes, and that is the philosopher or social scientist. And they go up into the world and see, oh wow, this is what the really wor the world really looks like. And they come back and say, you know, this is this is how you should interpret everything. This is this is what reality looks like. Um, and to me, that's kind of a, a very uh, it, it's it's a way of colonizing people's perceptions. It's a way of imposing ways of interpreting the world that discount um, uh, you know more subaltern views. Um, and so. The, you know, I came up with this figure of a warring, basically that, you know, there's a lot of burrows for us to go between when it comes to interpreting social phenomena. And I guess I'll say from the outset that I am a, uh, uh, what's called a neo-Kantian in that I don't have critiques of natural science. So, you know, masks prevent COVID transmission and tobacco causes cancer and three quarks make a proton. I, I have no quarrel with that. But when you get to what we call the human sciences, where you're actually trying to interpret social phenomena, then I don't think there's any way of, of escaping the ideological baggage that you show up with. And so when people do public health science, you know, public health work, they often show up with uh, neoliberal ideological baggage, you know, ideas that support market economies, that, are, um, that support, uh, you know, uh, corporate extraction, um, mainly elite interests. And this way of seeing the world actually says, you know what, there's a lot of different ways of parsing phenomena. There's a lot of different ways of seeing things. They all vie for the forefront of our consciousness and they all deserve a, t uh, a seat at the table. Um, you know, one of the, 
another starting point for the book is that I think most of what we do in public health, um, we see ourselves morally as morally related to um, you know the sick in the global south as potential saviors, right? We we just happen to live in a place with uh, with greater riches, and it's our duty to share those riches. If you really see yourself is your moral, if you really see your moral relation is one of um, that we are supporters of and beneficiaries from an institutional order that contributes to their destitution, then your ideas about intervention actually change. You go from um, the savior approach of aid and you know, humanitarian development to one of reparative justice or reparations. And so really that my journey has gone from moving through um, through kind of the aid paradigm to the development paradigm to the reparations paradigm. And of course, I still participate in aid and, and you know, doctors without orders and, and, um, and uh, partners in health work. I, you know, I think it has to be done, but as a form of transition till we get to an actual, um, uh, till we get to actual repair to, um, to uh, equality, which I don't think aid will ever get us to, and I'll, and I'll explain that more. So the coloniality from the title, um, just a quick uh, definition, um, the multiple global structures put in essentially since Columbus sailed the ocean blue um, did not evaporate with independence of former colonies. We continue to live under this colonial power matrix. So we've moved from what we would call global colonialism to global coloniality. And Sabelo in Glovo from South Africa says that despite the celebration of decolonization as a milestone in the, in the history of African liberation, um, Africa has not managed to free itself from epistemological colonization um, inscribed on the continent and its people by mission and secular schools, say universities, schools of public health, religious denominations, and other institutions that carried Western cultural imperialism. And that's what I try to show in the book is that a lot of times what we call um, you know, value neutral public health science, we're actually just carrying uh, ways of seeing the world that kind of promote status quo relations of inequality um, that, that have existed, you know, for the past 450 years. And what I think we do is that um, we, colonize, we, we actually colonize people's perceptions. So the example, one of the examples I use in the book is of a Harvard public health study that came into um, um, DRC and basically found that the outbreak was was so big there because you know of people's ignorance because of their belief in misinformation because they didn't believe Ebola was real because they thought it was a U.S. bioweapon and all those were facts you know they actually gathered that information from from people but if you if you stop there then you're really just again maintaining a status quo vision where it's ignorant people that we have to come save with aid and pamphlets. Um, and we just have to convince them through WhatsApp groups that Ebola is real. But if you really talk to people and, and you see these, um, these statements as kind of a historical consciousness, as a structured disposition for um, evading or eluding depredation, as a way of critiquing 200 years of um, you know, colonial legacy. So, you know, these people know that uh, King Leopold was there and was cutting off the hands of their ancestors when they didn't get it, collect enough rubber. They know the Belgians uh, continued that colonial extraction. They know that the U.S. and Belgium colluded in the 
in the murder of their first elected prime minister, and then the installation of a Cold War puppet dictator Mobutu, who, allowed, who basically paid, you know, we basically paid him just a little bit to rule the country while our countries ran, or while our companies ransacked the very rich resources of the country, which, which still happens to this day. So Anglo Gold Ashanti is a, uh, uh, a mining operation that uh, takes about 93% of the wealth out of the country when, when they're mining for gold. Um, and the, the lead shareholder for that is John Paulson. And Paulson gave $400 million to Harvard to name the School of Engineering. So you can, you can continue to trace extraction all the way to like my door at the university. Um, and, you know, there's nothing to show in Eastern Congo as, for, as far as roads, education, health infrastructure, but you can easily show that the money and the resources that have been taken out of the ground would have put, um, you know, a health infrastructure in place that would have stopped any Ebola outbreak in its tracks. And so it's easy when you look historically to tie why people get sick, why there are huge outbreaks there to legacies of colonialism, not to just ignorant, <laughs> ignorant people. Um, so, and, and this, this idea can be subbed up as uh, symbolic violence that like we have the, through these type of studies that say, you know, it's your ignorance, uh, that, uh, that's causing the outbreak to explode. Um, you know, that's, that, that shows we have the, the ability to impose ways of understanding the world on other people. Um, because when I was there, you know, the WHO, the Ministries of Health, they started picking up this narrative. Oh, let's just, you know, this is what's causing the problem. If we could just have more WhatsApp groups and more chiefs working with us, we could just, you know, finish the outbreak. And I'd go into WHO meetings and say, what I, um, I think we should pay everybody $100 to take the vaccine since no one will take it. And that'll be the start, you know, say that'll cost $100 million. That'll be the start of a reparations campaign to the tune of four or five trillion that the US or Belgium owe. Um, but this will be the first installment of it and then we'll move on to the rest of the, the five trillion. And I get laughed out of the room. Um, but, you know, if you look at um, every movement for progressive justice has, has started small and then has achieved its goal. So if you look at the abolition movement in the 1800s and it's described by, uh, in the book, Bury the Chains. Um, uh, and they, they succeeded in abolishing slavery, right? And so the 1800s were the century of abolition. And then you look at the, um, the 1900s, which were a century of development and aid and humanitarian work. Um, I think the 2000s could very well be a century of uh, reparations. Mm. So I'll skip this. Um, you know, one of the examples of how I, um, how I see, you know, um, public health organizations committing this symbolic violence um, is the IHME or the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is an epidemiology group in uh, Washington that received over $600 million from Gates. That's a huge amount of money for an epi group. Um, and the question is, like, does, it, does this distort the way people see the world? And a lot of us answer yes. And here's an example of how. Um, so the IHME back in last spring uh, made their COVID forecasts and their forecasts were wrong 70% of the time. So, so they were bad, they were wrong, but they were so, they were so um, low that the Trump administration actually used them to, to show that they were doing a good job. So they were co-opted 
quick, very quickly for ideological purposes. But my main um, take on them is that they're actually also racist uh, because you know when you put out there a forecast that says like this is what our world could look like. Um, and you say, wear masks and social distance. And if you do that, we'll get from 10 million to 1 million infections. You know, you're still actually, um, because of the way disparities are built into, you know, what we've seen with the COVID uh, epidemic in the U.S., where Black people are getting infected up to, you know, three times what white people are. Whether it's 10 million or there's 1 million, Black people are still getting infected three times as much. None of these none of these groups are doing anything to you know intervene into racial justice and to risk structure, um, and so and, and this is what you know the the sum up of the book that a lot of this work I think actively delimits um, through exaggerated precision the public's ability to imagine social alternatives, and so we've created this Lancet Commission on uh, reparations and redistributive justice which I'm chairing, um, and part of the goal is to imagine social alternatives. One of our ancillary papers uh, to do some actual anti-racist modeling was just published last month, um, and it's called Reparations for American Descendants of Persons Enslaved in the U.S. and Their Potential Impact on SARS-CoV-2 Transmission. And we basically show that, um, you know, reparations, if they had been paid five, ten years ago, would not only reduce the disparities and would not only reduce the number of infections in Black people, it would have reduced infections across the board, across races, because when you're able to intervene, often the highest risk group determines dynamics for the general population. So if you're able to intervene in the highest risk group, there's benefits for the whole population. It got picked up by CNN and a lot of other places, and I still haven't stopped getting hate mail a month later. Very race, like severe racist hate speech. So that's uh, what I do. And uh, happy to discuss now. Um, here's my email if you want to send me any follow-up uh, discussion. And then here's my um, Twitter handle in case you want to follow each other there. So I thank you, and I will stop sharing. Thank you. Um, boy, you sure painted the picture. Uh, this is the situation we're facing today, you know, and I really am glad that you came to show us your opinion about what's really going on and what we can do. Is there any hope? What would you suggest that we respond to future outbreaks? How would you suggest we handle them? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think, you know, we, we still, of course, have to support the, uh, like, you know, for example, in uh, the Ebola outbreaks in in West and Central Africa, you know, still supporting the humanitarian apparatus that helps out there. Um, but thinking ahead, and so um, there's moves to stockpile Ebola vaccines, um, and so that there are enough on, uh, uh, there's enough supply when the outbreaks happen. Um, there's also the, the idea that, you know, NGOs, you know, when you go like Partners in Health, uh, their motto is, you know, we come, we stay. So that when you, you go somewhere, you actually help build sustainable health systems instead of land, you know, inject some arms and then, and then get out. And then I'd also think about pivoting from the humanitarian aid model to a more reparative justice model where we're thinking of supporting reparations claims. So even I heard recently in Belgium, Princess Esmeralda supports reparations claims for, uh, for, uh, uh, Congo, even though I guess the rest of the royal family doesn't. So, you know, it is, there is a movement happening. 
Yeah, well, thank you.